Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome to Your Cases on Hold, a JBJS podcast hosted by Antonia Chen and Andrew Schoenfeld. Here, we discuss the science of each issue of JBJS with an additional dose of entertainment and pop culture. Take us with you in the gym, on the commute, or most certainly, whenever your case is on hold. Live from Las Vegas, your case is on hold with the Merv Spinner dancers, Momo Sippler and his hilarious hijinks, and your favorite co-hosts, the Sears of Scientific Discovery, the Wizards of Orthopedic Wit, performing death-defying feats of analytic dissection, Andrew Schoenfeld and Antonia Chen, with special guests from Tony Romo, Jackie Childs, Brant and the Dude, and Kaiser Soze, setting you up and walking straight at the end. Spin that roulette wheel. You've already won because you're the lucky winner who's come in and is listening to us today live from the AOS meeting in Las Vegas. I think I'm looking like the money. And, you know, we're in Vegas, baby. We're in Vegas. Vegas. Rolling it hot. That's the only way I know. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Your Cases on Hold. And we are actually in the same facility in a different part of the world, right. <laughs> ironically. So we want to thank you for being here. I am deputy editor of Adult Reconstruction, and you are? You didn't say your name. My name is Antonia Chen. <laughs> Antonia is the only person who's with me for who I actually am. Everyone else is with me for who they think Andrew Schoenfeld Deputy Editor of Statistics and Methodology is. And as you can tell, these opinions are truly our own. <laughs> they do not reflect anyone else's opinion in the midst of all the fun. No, for sure. It's all fun. Don't take it too seriously. We're giving you everything that JBJS has to offer in this uh, issue. This is our 32nd episode. No better way than to kick off number 32 than being in Las Vegas. This is for the April 19th issue of JBJS. But tell the listeners what they've won. They've won an ex- all-expense trip paid to watch videos on JBJS website. And it, let me tell you, it's glorious. Are you bored? Do you want something else to do? There are wonderful videos to see anything that you want on JBJS live now for your le- viewing pleasure. Yes. And they've won OrthoCore. Tell them about that. It's the top of the pile. Top of the pile. We're going for OrthoCore. Introducing Ortho, JBJS OrthoCorps, an online audio archive of stories from the orthopedic community. Uh, our fearless editor-in-chief, doc, Mr. Dr. Dr. Suntowski, Dr. Dr. Suntowski uh, is introducing this, and it's a fantastic avenue to listen to, and it's permanently free. You can also learn what's new in sports medicine by McKeithen. It's also permanently free. We want to have support for a unified health record to combat disparities in healthcare. This is by Crawford. And then finally- Everyone should read that one. It's like so exceptionally well done. He's the best in the world. Yeah, and I'm also on it. So <laughs> Crawford and Al do a wonderful job of doing this. But in all honesty, though, a unified health record is what we were hoping for. No, this is, and it, it makes a lot of he sense. Came up with this. This is like I was just 
I was just added on for fun. No, he did a great job. Fun is a good way to go. And finally, patient-reported outcome measures, why every orthopedic practice should be collecting them by Mockney. And he's a leader in this field. So great to have him. Definitely. So we're starting off with the headlines. All right. about yours? Headlines. This is presentation and surgical management of multiple ligament knee injuries, a multi-center study from the surgical timing and rehabilitation STAR trial for ML. KIS network. This is by Poplowski and colleagues. There's a visual summary, and um, it's also 30 days free, so you can definitely check this out. So this is a study uh, that was conducted across 14 centers among 773 individuals for multiple ligamentous uh, injuries of the knee. Obviously, these can be um, limb-threatening injuries. They are complex injuries, challenging injuries. It's very difficult to get a sufficient number in in one particular center and and thus the need for this this multi-center group. So it has large numbers and they are looking at basically presenting, you know, their experience and characterizing these uh, various multiligamentous injuries of the knee using the shank knee uh, dislocation classification system. They say in the introduction that there has not been high-level evidence describing the presentation and treatment of these types of injuries. But hopefully, you're not waiting for the high-level evidence because they do grade this level four. So I thought it was interesting that they mentioned that right out the bat. It's like when you go to like the Ralph Lauren fashion show and they, they're showing you all the stuff, the models are coming down the runway and you're like, I want to buy that. And they're like, oh, no, that's not available. <laughs> not for you, peasants. I'm sorry. So they're like, there's not high level evidence and they're still not (laughs) at the end of the day. Um, But I I think, you know, for for a condition like this, you're you're probably getting pretty close to the best you can do uh, realistically. So the, the other things that, you know, I thought stood out, I mean, it really is a descriptive epidemiology. They're just really talking about, you know, their experience, um, how these present the the associated injuries and basically describing, you know, what are the ones that are most common to least common. And when I think, when I was reading the title and I'm thinking multiple ligamentous injuries of the knee, I'm thinking like, like the knee dislocation, you know, it's like an emergency. Uh, But then when you read this, you know, they're, they're in there, but they're not very many of them. I mean, 44% of this cohort is ACL combined with either a medial sided or lateral sided injury. And one third have bicruciate injuries, so that that's uh, interesting there. So you're you're already getting above like seventy or close to eighty percent. And then the remainder are the MLK three M and L, and then there's there's a very small number that's MLK one PML. So that that was something else that that you know kind of stood out. Um, their their limitation section is a little bit you know underdeveloped. I think one of the things that stands out it's fourteen centers that were selected on the basis of their experience and expertise in treating these injuries. So that right there is just spelling out an expertise bias. Again, they kind of have a limited cohort. It's not completely representative across the full possible spectrum of injuries that that could present as multiple ligamentous injuries of the knee. And a lot of them are more in this like ACL on one side or the bicruciate injuries. So you know, there, there are a few more limitations, I think, than the, they mention. The conclusions, I, I thought, you know, we're, we're on this, we're in, we're in Vegas, it's like Sopranos town. 
another Sopranos ending paradigm. If you don't know what I'm talking about, listen to the last episode where we where we actually bring that to light for the first time. But it's the same kind of thing. They're like, there's not high level evidence. We need to develop this this comprehensive study. We've got 14 centers. It's multi-center. It's really building you up to this. Okay, here's the take home message, and the take home message is like this may ultimately lead to enhanced outcomes and re reduced association risks and can provide individualized treatment of these complex injuries. Uh, all of that is hypothetical and theoretical. There's, there's not a, a holistic summation. It's just sort of like, here's our experience. These are rare conditions. Here's sort of what's out there. Here's how we manage it. And then you're left to do with it what, what you will. I, I think, again, the, the rarity of these injuries and the um, large number from high volume, you know, quote unquote, prospectively um, high volume centers is is what gives this, you know, um, some real advantage and interest. If your practice is like these individuals practice, then I think it might be informative than if your practice is different from from their practice, we'll say, or your volume isn't at the same level, or the experience of your center is not at the same level. But um, definitely worth checking out. I, I thought it was a good read. It's uh, well written and um, not dense or anything like that. So um, definitely check it out. I agree. Looks good. Not many centers, 14 centers collaborating together. It's always a win. Yeah. I think it was headed up by Pitt too. So another uh, touch point for you. It's always a win when it's Pitt related. Now I, now I need to check that. <laughs> While you're checking. It would, it would make sense that, it, that it's Pitt. Yeah. We saw a bunch of multi-leg intermediates, honestly, when we were residents. And it's one of those things where you don't see enough of them to make a conclusion from one center alone. So you definitely incorporate others. And it's a cry out for any other rare conditions that we see that if you can gather a bunch of people together, people are willing to collaborate now and it's easier easier to collaborate. So these are important things yes. to do. Approved by the University of Pittsburgh. Go Panthers. There you go. Mine is going to be looking at influence of scan parameters of single and dual energy CT protocols in combination with metal artifact suppression algorithms for total hip arthroplasty and ex vivo study. So when it comes to imaging patients, we're always looking for things like fracture. And the problem is once you have an implant in place, it's going to scatter when you do imaging. So for the MRI, we have Mars MRI, and it's really just a sequential uh, algorithm. It's a software, basically, that it processes the metal and is able to try to reduce the amount of scatter present. And the question is, can we do this in CT scans? And what I see is this paper is a practical guideline for those who are working with a radiologist and say, can you use these parameters in practice so that we can see our implants, see around our implants better? So if a patient comes with a periprosthetic fracture, you'll want to be able to notice that. So CT scans are useful, obviously, for looking at bone and metal-related artif metal artifacts are beam-hardening artifacts. What does that mean? That means there's two main types. There's a streak artifact, and we've seen that there's dark streaks around structures and between structures, and there's blooming artifacts. And basically, it makes the uh, prosthesis look larger than they are. It looks like it's ballooning in front of you. So, you know, you're looking at, let's say, the greater trochanteric region and the, sh the shoulder of the implant is kind of ballooning out at you. The implant's not that big. You can see that by radiograph. But these are the artifacts that happen, especially in CT scan. So the strategies that they implemented in a cadaver setting where they took nine cadavers, um, of which six of them were uncemented stems and three were cemented stems. They wanted to see if there's a difference. The metal obviously is not hugely different per se, but obviously one goes to the cortex, one doesn't go to the cortex when it comes to cemented versus uncemented. And they did different strategies of single energy and dual energy. And they looked at image-based metal segmentation methods. You know, Over and over again, they did image-based segmentation and segmentation to try to reduce the amount of scatter present. 
And what they found that is the metal artifact reduction with IMAR significantly reduced the streak artifacts in all the investigated protocols. And specifically, if they use a single energy one with a 140 kilovolt and a tin filter, it would do better. Tin hat. Well, you know, I tip my tin hat to you. (laughs) But do I have a heart or not? (laughs) That's really the question. And if you do a secondary single energy with IMAR, that was good, but not as good with our little tin hat filter. The least streak and blooming artifacts were observed for monoenergetic reconstructions. And they said mostly 160 and 190 uh, kilovolt with IMAR, but also the 110 as well. So these are a lot of letters and numbers that are beyond my scope of practice. I actually personally don't do CT scans. I don't know about you. Yeah, I was going to ask, how common is the IMAR protocol, like as far as, you know, that they're talking about here, the like how common is is that in it? It's a good question. And I, I think the answer is it depends on what software package you get from whatever company you're looking at, right? Mm-hmm. So whatever, you know, brand. this says it should be used in clinical practice, right? right. So it, it, whether it's available or not. So, so like there's some patients who I'll send for a Mars MRI, right? And in our own facility, I can write that down and they'll do that for a total hit, total knee protocol. Right. But if I send them out, they don't always have that software protocol on there. Mm-hmm. So then they do a whole MRI or a whole CT scan, which is, you know, exposes them to either radiation, a CT scan, or just time and money for an MRI. And it still doesn't give me the information I want. So whether or not this should become more readily available to people, right? So they can do that in these contexts. It's not a common thing that we need in all honesty, but if we need it and we have it, then it's ideal to have it there. I think the should is a little strong should. in the conclusion. <laughs> um, if you were an impl- if you were an imaging company, you would say should too. <laughs> well, sure, yeah. <laughs> so there you go. So if you do CT scans with hardware, and I think this applies outside of total hips, obviously it's just focused on total hips. If you need to see around it, then the scatter can be reduced with these sequences. Next, comparative effectiveness. This is total the your case is on hold featurette. This is the featurette, and it's also in, in Las Vegas. They put the cases that are going on hold in the desert. They got holes in the desert to solve the problems in Vegas. So is this going in a hole or? We're going to find out. Right, we're going to find out. So it depends what type of hole. Are we thinking like Hoover Dam, like off no, of that hole? No. Okay, okay. Just in a ditch. The one that's dug and you know where it's going to be before you get there. But not cement boots, like cement. Like, <laughs> that, that's Jersey. <laughs> yeah. So There's no ocean here. <laughs> comparative effectiveness of total hip arthroplasty and hemiarthroplasty for femoral neck fracture, a propensity score matched cohort study by Tahiti. And there's also a commentary. So again, you don't have to take our word for it. Right. Definitely check out the commentary. But I I, I definitely have some interesting uh, thoughts uh, on this, and I'm interested in your insights as well. So the the first thing is that this is well-worn territory, the comparison of total hip or hemiarthroplasty in patients with femoral neck fractures. And the authors cover this. I mean, they're, they're open about it. They're not trying to pull the wool over anybody's eyes or anything. They're, they're very open about the fact that, you know, there have been a lot of studies, many randomized trials. And then there was the health study, which was probably the most recent and the, you know, incredibly large, multi-center, multi, multinational, I believe, and, and really well done. And they say um, that, that they like the health study and that the health studies results are similar to their own. So that, my first question is like, why are we still, why are we still having this conversation? You have the health study that addresses this topic. And that is randomized controlled data. And this is a study that's, you know, at best simulating a randomized controlled study. So, you know, like how many studies are needed on on this this topic? I mean, I'm all for, but once you have something that really kind of has has set the the table as far as, you know, answering this question, 
unless there are like questions on the margins or things like that, which I don't really think this study is getting to. It just left me like, you know, they have a long time window. It's a population-based cohort, close to 50,000 patients. That's obviously larger than you're going to get from an RCT. But if the answer is the same, the, the larger number of patients doesn't change. And, and we're going to touch on that a little bit more as well. So they have patients who obviously went hemiarthroplasty or underwent total hip for femoral neck fracture. It covers a 15-year time frame, which is a long time window with some, some secular trends. And then they want to simulate the parameters of clinical equipoise as you'd have in a randomized trial. So they do propensity score matching technique. And the propensity score matching technique, you know, they say it's total hip arthroplasty has been associated with less pain, better ambulation. It may be used selectively in patients who are more active and they want to basically, you know, cut the ends off of the people that would never be considered for hemiarthroplasty, the people who are only going to be considered for hemiarthroplasty, and then you get like where it could have gone either way. And you're sort of saying it's, it's the effect of randomization. But as we've touched on before, the propensity score matching is only as good as the, the technique itself, the methodology itself. And in this case, they are using a caliper that's pretty permissive. It's 0.2. That is like the upper limit of like anything higher than that. You're saying you're not really doing it. Like you're not, that's a very permissive caliper. And so they, they do the match. They were able to find matches for 99% of their total hip arthroplasty patients, which also for me is kind of when you're finding that many matches for cohort, it's probably the caliper needs to be more narrow to actually have a cohorts with true clinical equipoise. But anyhow, you know, the patients treated with total hip arthroplasty had higher risk of dislocation 30 days and one and two years postoperatively. There's no difference in short-term or long-term risk of revision surgery. And the risk of death at one and two years was lower for patients treated with total hip arthroplasty, which to me, they say, oh, it's because they have better mobility. I would say that that's showing the selection bias that persists. That is showing that this is a selectively longer survival is baked into that cohort. So I, I think it's a very permissive caliper, questions around true equipoise. And if it's two different populations that are amalgamated here, I'm really unsure that, that the, the propensity score is creating the true equipoise that would be necessary. But then even when you get beyond that, it's statistically significant, but it's essentially a 1% dislocation rate versus a 2% dislocation rate at two years. And you know, my question for you, because this is in your wheelhouse, not necessarily from the fracture standpoint, but you do take trauma call and you know, from just the joint arthroplasty aspect, is that clinically meaningful? Do you sacrifice the functional outcome that's going to be better for someone when there's equipoise just to avoid a 1% dislocation <laughs> difference? So if you look at it in absolute numbers, that's a 100% difference, right? Well, 50% reduction, right? Would you say? Uh, okay. <laughs> I mean, that's why you shouldn't use those kinds of terms when you're talking about it, right? That's a perfect example of Correct. why you shouldn't. Yes, right. it would be 50% reduction right. from 2% to 1%, right? But, but that's that too. And now if my dislocation rate was going up, let's say from a primary hip to 2% to 1%, I'd be happy with a 50% reduction because I'd like to see that difference. That said, the trade-off that they don't capture here is exactly what you're saying. I'm more likely to do a total hip arthroplasty in one candidate and do a hemiarthroplasty in a different type of patient. And I'm, if a patient has longer life expectancy, 
more active, arthritis on the other side, those are the factors that factor into it. And so um, while dislocation risk is higher because of ball size, right? The ball size is larger for hemiarthroplasty versus a total hip arthroplasty. You're also not accounting for patients who are more active, right? So you're saying that 2% may be dislocation, even though they have big balls, they're going to just be more active patients. And the activity means better cardiovascular, you know, better function, Absolutely. better patient reported outcomes. So those are things that are not captured necessarily by this direct comparison of implant types. So they, they talk about that rigorous propensity score methods were used. And I guess rigorous is open to interpretation because, again, the caliper is pretty permissive. And they say more restrictive propensity score matching using a smaller caliper might have decreased residual confounding. Absolutely true but might have also reduced our power. And I disagree with that. I think it's a specious claim because yes, it is true. If you decrease the numbers, the power will invariably decrease, but these numbers are already incredibly large. They have you know close to 5,000, over 4,500 total hip patients. If you reduce that by just like the 600 where you, know, you still have 4,000. So it's plausible, but probably not you know, that accurate. And then you know, what they're really going to, toward here is RCTs are, are idealized studies. And this is a real world study. They use that term. They say in the real world, neither treatment was found to be definitively better than the other. But what they leave out is that it's just in these particular like areas that you're talking about. You're not measuring all the things that matter in the real world, such as like patients are not just concerned about you know, whether or not they're going to dislocate. They're concerned about like how active can they be? Can they be riding a bike? Can they be running? Can they be going back to all their physical activity levels that they had pre-fracture? Which, oh, by the way, if they don't get to that, that has negative consequences as well. And then they completely gloss over the lower risk of death. Like that, they just, they put that in a hole in the desert and just forgot about it. So they just left that, that part out. They were just like, yes, this is true. And then they say, well, but we don't, they gave an explanation that again, I think is if you're looking at their methodology, it's probably more explained as an artifact of the methodology. And while their counterfactual, again, is plausible, it's just use Occam's razor here, which is more likely. It's more likely an artifact than it is that, you know, the material benefits of the total hip, which all, all, oh, by the way, even if that is true, then it's just another reason why it's right. So that's, that's what I have for this one here. So do you put it on hold? Does it go into a hole in the desert or is it a lot of Go gamble. Yeah, I mean, so uh, you know, at the end of the day, it, there's nothing about what they came up with that that is, you know, I, I think their talking points and how they're trying to the the narrative that is going along with this is is more what I have questions about. Sure. Um, uh, you know, from a from the outside of the caliper piece, which is you know maybe more in the weeds than people care to hear about. If you're talking about just the the standpoint of the the methodologic approach, it was well done. Again, when you have the health study that's already saying the same things, I'm not sure what's the incremental increase in the evidence in the literature that this provided versus what was already there from the health. I'm not sure. There. You heard it from the source. All right. We're going to honorable mentions now. We'll give you a little bit of summary as to what each one of these are, thanks to our colleague who came up with this great idea. Yep. An interrupted time series analysis measuring the impact of research and education on clinical practice. Decreasing allograft use in young patients using a registry to track outcomes by Malitis um, at all. There's an infographic on it. It's also 30 days free, so you can read it there. For this study specifically, the idea was that in the healthcare system, they did more research and education and educated people on the use of allografts, and they saw a decrease in allograft utilization following the implementation of an allograft 
reduction program. And during the same period, they actually had a decrease in ACL reconstruction revision rates. Whether or not they're tied together is one thing to look at. So you should go read the article to learn more about it. The next one is expectant management tendon transfer or nerve transfer strategies, a surgery for radial nerve injury, a qualitative study exploring patient expectations, goals, and treatment experiences by Lieberdorf et al., also infographic and also 30 days free. In this study, they looked at the importance of initial collaborative care in setting expectations for patients with radial nerve injuries, and many participants named returning to work and hand appearance as primary concerns, and hand therapists were actually a huge source of support and information during recovery. And finally, we have a novel surgical classification for extremity and pelvic hemophiliac pseudotumors, the PUMCH classification by Lee et al. This is permanently free and definitely worth checking out because it's nice to see classification systems. It's based on anatomic pathology and surgical strategies for hemophiliac pseudotumor. And the classification of these hemophiliac pseudotumors corresponds to surgical outcomes and may be helpful for decision-making regarding their surgical tech treatment as these classification should be. Thank you for joining us for another session live from Las Vegas. That wraps it up. We're still here in Vegas, but your case is still on hold. You can catch us in all sorts of places out here. Where's your favorite spot in Vegas? Where can where can someone find you 95% of the time? Oh, I'm in the conference, but that's not because uh, I oh, like it. On. Like, be a little bit more. Like, <laughs> I like the Bellagio. The Bellagio I'm Fountains. A Bellagio the Bellagio person. Fountains. That's my go-to. What's yours? Um, Antonio will be at Spago at the Bellagio. <laughs> Mine is uh, Forum Shops at Caesars Palace or the Crystal Shops at the Cosmopolitan. Or Always, the pool deck at the Palazzo. <laughs> Always dressed to impress. That's like I can say for sure. Thanks for joining us. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.